thank you so much for having me, and thank you all for venturing out tonight. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I've said today that all of this weather and, and everything that's happened today um, has been very unexpected to us, but it has not been unexpected to the Lord. And all along, he has known what today will hold. He has known exactly every woman who's sitting in this room today, who's going to hear it later online, and he has a plan for it. And so I'm, I'm all for whatever he has here today. But I would like to start with prayer. So would you join me, please? Father, we come to you thankful, um, thankful for the body of Christ here in Manhattan, where we're able to gather freely and experience you in the body, experience worship. Father, we don't take that for granted. We know that that is not the privilege of our brothers and sisters all across the world to be able to meet openly. Father, I pray for our time here together this weekend, I pray that you would begin to forge some relationships that you want to sharpen um, and refine us. I pray here that women would be encouraged, that they would be spurred on, that they would find more and more um, direction in the paths that you're calling them to. Lord, I pray as I talk here tonight that your spirit would edit the things that I would be saying um, to fit exactly the people in this room and what they need to hear for this moment in their life right now. I pray also um, that your spirit would be stirring here in the room, um, pricking our hearts to hear the things that we need to hear. Father, we really want your voice to be the loudest here. Um, and just know that it doesn't matter um, what the presentation li is like or even necessarily what the content is like. If the spirit is not here moving, um, it is all for naught, and it, and it all just blows away. And so, God, we ask that you would be very present here um, and have your way in these things. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So, I are we? Oh, no. I see the little projector there, but there's nothing behind me. So this was one of the unexpected things is that we don't have any slides today. I had a picture of my girls, for those of you who don't know them, so you could see a little bit of my family. But I have four teenage and young adult girls. We've got two high schoolers, a college student, and then my oldest has graduated and is getting married in six weeks. So that's very exciting, our first wedding in the family. Um, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about um, a trip that my daughter Piper went on. She went to the Dominican Republic last summer. How are we doing on sound, Stephanie? We okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, she went to the Dominican Republic last summer and got to do a variety of things. So the thing she was really looking forward to is she's interested in, in working um, in social work and interested in human trafficking, and they were going to go visit the International Justice Mission's office there. Well, it turns out the week that they were there was the week that they were in a trial that they had been like waiting years and years to get to court to do this. So the whole office was shut down and then, well, they were in court. So that piece was what, that, what she was looking for. She didn't get to go to. But what she came back with her favorite story was going to a leper colony that was also a nursing home. So in the Dominican Republic, those who have leprosy, it's considered somehow God is cursing you. There's something wrong 
with you and you're kind of shut away and you're taken out of society. And she had a great conversation with a man who actually also spoke English and he used to be a pastor and he was only in his 40s and he's in this nursing home forgotten by friends and family um, because he's missing pieces of his body. And she came home and just told us in tears about this experience. It was so wonderful. And the interesting thing was this, she came back with some of the same stories that I've heard other people say, not the same exact stories, but the thing is always when, as Americans, we go visit third world countries, we have a mindset of we are wealthy and we have so much to bring to them. And she found out what every other American finds out when they go to a third world country is that these people are actually very, very wealthy. These people are wealthy and rich in relationships in ways that we as Americans know nothing about. We have been fooled into thinking that having things instead of relationships are going to bring us happiness. And so here she saw these people in extreme poverty, but the interdependence that they had to live with because they had no other choice fostered these rich relationships. Worship in the church was like heaven. She said she cannot wait for heaven because it, the spirit was there. It was filling that place with those people and with the relationships in the room. Now, as we look into um, our culture, we know that we've gone through the space age, we've gone through the digital age, and now we are in what journalist George Monobot calls the age of loneliness. While we carry around access to the entire world in our pocket, we can just pull it out, type it in, Many of us are living really lonely and disconnected lives, and loneliness is really becoming an epidemic. In fact, um, I'm trying to remember, I didn't put this down, but there's um, another country that has a minister of loneliness. Specifically, they've identified it as such an epidemic in their problem, in their country. So living in an age of social media, I kind of think of that like as candy for a meal. Like we always have this candy in our pocket we can pull out anytime we feel a little uncomfortable. We can scroll through social media and we can kind of get our fix and move on. But we're not really engaging in these deep, rich, substantive relationships that would be like a nice, great steak meal. Or if you don't like steak, whatever other amazing meal you would have. Um, but actually, it's God's design for us to be in relationship. This is part of the way that he forms his image in us. It's the way he uses to encourage us is through other people. It's the way that he smooths off the rough edges in our lives is through other people, through interactions with other people. So this weekend was born out of asking the question, just praying, like, what does the church need right now? What do we need? And I believe that one of the biggest things we need right now is each other. And then I began asking, okay, Lord, well, how do I give them each other? <laughs> like, that's kind of a hard, hard gift to give. But this whole weekend was born out of that. So we are going to explore friendships and mentoring through a biblical lens and give you some really practical tools. We're going to talk about why this is hard. There's a reason why people bail. There's a reason why we would rather just pull out our phone and look at it. Um, but we have some tools that I, I can help you with um, 
in that direction um, so that you're able to feel more equipped to have healthy and life-giving relationships. I'm also gonna have a little bit of time for Q&A tomorrow. We'll see how this whole thing goes. Since Sarah couldn't come from Kansas City, we're gonna whole revamp the whole day tomorrow. Um, but we'll still have some time for Q&A. So as things come up in groups or questions in your mind as I'm talking, just jot them down and then um, maybe able to get back to those later. So friendtoring is a mashup of the words friendship and mentoring, and it's used to describe a specific type of relationship that we don't really have an English word for. A friendtoring relationship is not as formal as a typical mentoring relationship might be, but it also has more accountability than one might typically expect in a friendship. So I'm gonna go a little bit more into the details of that tomorrow, but tonight we're gonna do three things. We are going to take a look at the relationships of Barnabas, Paul, and Timothy. We're gonna talk about conflict, dun, 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 and how to process through your own thoughts and feelings. Okay, so let's jump in to the stories of these three men, um, which are written in the book of Acts. So it all started with Barnabas. Barnabas was a gifted teacher, apostle, and prophet in the early church. He was very generous with his wealth, and he was led by the Holy Spirit in all he said and did. His given name was Joseph, and his um, believer buddies changed it to Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of exhortation. So exhortation is not a word that we use commonly in the English language, and I like how one of my friends defines it. It's encouragement with a push. I love that. So um, some, someone who is exhorting you isn't only going to tell you um, all the things that you're wonderful at and um, things you can celebrate and be joyful about, but they're also going to point out some things that, ways that you might have strayed off a little bit and that God might want to be steering you back on the right path. And they're going to be your, their, your cheerleader as you try to follow the Holy Spirit in getting back on the right path. And so there's the element of encouraging it in what's right and also steering us back to um, where we need to be if we're off in the wrong direction. So this is, this is what Barnabas's name was because this was primarily what he was known for as his character. In Acts, we see that Barnabas is the first person to accept Paul, the first to vouch for his true conversion and his desire to follow Christ. Prior to this, Paul was widely known and feared because he was actively pursuing those who had converted to Christianity, and he was brutally ravaging the church and putting them to death. In Acts 9, we read this about Paul. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. I'm sure they thought he was trying to infiltrate their ranks, pretending. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Paul had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so from this, Paul and Barnabas began a friendship, and they traveled together preaching the gospel and were able to get the benefits of sharpening in a relationship that only comes from very close proximity and being around each other for extended periods of time. Anybody that you've lived with for a long amount of time, you know that's when the rough edges have to start coming off because you're grinding against each other as you're uh, going about life and poking into each other. So it wasn't long before Paul began to exceed Barnabas in influence and spiritual gifting. 
And then soon we begin to see the duo referred to as Paul and Barnabas rather than Barnabas and Paul. And that indicated that switch in influence. So it takes a lot of grace, humility, and maturity to be able to bless someone who you've mentored and brought along when they begin to exceed you in spiritual authority and influence. And in many ways, what we have in the New Testament, so many of those letters are written by Paul, those may not have been there if Barnabas hadn't been the one to encourage him to bring him up and hadn't blessed him with his gifts to go on and do what God was calling him to do. Instead of having a spirit of competition with Paul, where Barnabas felt like he needed to, well, I'm the older one, I need to kind of up the ante here, maybe I need to step, step it up rather than make way for Paul's leadership. Um, Barnabas realized they really have the same goal. It was to glorify God, it was to preach the gospel, and so Barnabas was able to bless Paul in going out and pursuing all that he had for him. And now we come to Timothy. So Barnabas and Paul likely met Timothy on their first missionary journey when Timothy was in his very early teens. And then on his second missionary journey, Paul takes Timothy under his wing, and they begin traveling and ministering together. So Paul was in his 40s approximately, and Timothy was in his late teen years when this started. So we see in Paul and Timothy's relationship a pattern of he started out um, where Paul calls him his son in the faith. He really looks on him as a father. He's, he's the age of Timothy's father, and he's taking them, and they're doing ministry together. He also becomes a student. He learns from Paul, and then he becomes a colleague and co-laborer with Paul. And actually, six of the New Testament letters that we have are not only written by Paul, but Paul and Timothy in there. So Timothy has had quite an influence in our scriptures as well. So at the time Paul writes 2 Timothy, Paul and Timothy have known each other for about 15 years. Paul is about 60 years old. He's in prison and doesn't think he will make it out alive. This letter to Timothy, Paul knows, has the possibility of being his very last words to him. And so in this letter, Paul encourages Timothy in his faith. He reminds him that following Jesus involves risk. It involves inviting tension and discomfort into his life, and that that's not a sign of the Lord's absence. So as 21st century Americans, we read the scriptures to see how to live out a life in a godly way, and Timothy got to actually experience it, to walk that with Paul every step of the way. And Paul um, writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and what you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that you, word translated men, that can mean women too, it's not isolated to men, but th those things that he has heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses, trust to other faithful men and women who will also be able to teach others. And so it's Paul's very design that this pattern we see from Barnabas to Paul to Timothy, that that's to continue on and on. That's not an isolated, these were the most amazing men and you can never have this happen in your own life kind of thing. That's not what it is. It really is the pattern for what being a believer is about. 
So I would like you to take a little mental jump in history. We've been back in the first century. Now jump to modern times um, and think of, picture my kids in your mind since the picture can't be up here, but (laughs) one, I really love this season of life. I love parenting teenagers. Um, It was fun when they were little, but this is like my jam. I like being able to have deep conversations with them. One of the best things about this is that we all sit around the table at dinner and talk about the funny things that they did when they were little, the things, that these mysteries that, um, you know, who was eating the gummy worms when they were all missing, you know? Um, so you'll have to ask them about who that was, but everyone claimed they were innocent, you know, everyone's innocent except they're all gone, that kind of thing. Um, so we get some funny stories around the table. We also get funny babysitting stories. So those of you who hire them for babysitters, we love that too. But not long ago, our second oldest daughter, Macy, she's a college student right now. Um, she told me that um, up until sometime when she was in high school, she thought that all adults got along and liked each other. And I was like, really? Like, you live in our house. You've heard your dad and I, (laughs) you know, like, we don't always get along. Um, And she's like, no, seriously, like, I thought all the teachers got along at school. I thought all the adults at church got along. And, and I thought, wow, this is, this is really amazing. We had a great laugh over that because it couldn't be further from the truth, right? As adults, we don't really get along better than we did when we were little kids. We just know how to hide it better. And, and we know how to, like, grumble and talk about it in ways that maybe people aren't going to find out about. We don't, we're not really more mature sometimes than we were at a young age. Um, and I think one of the misconceptions is when we come to church that this is going to be a safe place where we're never going to be hurt. I know I've believed that lie, and it's a big fat lie. If I were to ask everyone here to raise their hand if they've been deeply hurt by someone in church, I would expect every hand to go up. And if it didn't, I would say, well, you just haven't been here long enough, okay? Because that's how it is. Whenever there are people, there is conflict. There is nothing new under the sun. This is just part of how life goes, okay? We see it all over the Bible. We see that in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement about John Mark that for a time they parted company. And so here, Barnabas and Paul, who'd done all of this traveling together, Barnabas, who had been his mentor, Paul was like, no, I do not trust John Mark. He has betrayed my confidence, and I'm not taking him back. He deserted us before, and I'm not willing to. So they part company. And we don't hear the particulars of how it gets resolved, but we know later on that Paul writes, he's so thankful for John Mark because he's been a huge help to him. Right, so somewhere along the line, that got resolved. Maybe Paul... Um, in his young faith, just didn't realize how patient and forgiving you need to be for those who um, are newer in the faith and, and welcoming people back and giving grace. We don't know exactly how that worked out, but that wasn't the only time. In the New Testament, we see plenty of instances of people experiencing conflict. Um, A lot of times, it's like in the end of the letter where you just start glazing over and skimming when you get to that. But Paul's actually addressing men and women in the church, encouraging them to get along and to resolve their differences and to remember that they're working together for the same thing. 
We're also told um, not only that there was conflict, but Paul warns Timothy that there will be conflict, that there will be people who will come in having an appearance of godliness, but in reality are opposed to the truth and are deceptive. So hear that, an appearance of godliness. So someone who looks from all outward appearances, the way they talk, the way they dress, all of those things, they look godly, but in reality are opposed to the truth and deceptive. So that means that only those with discernment are really going to be able to pick these people out and see what's going on and not be deceived. Can you imagine what a conflict that's, that was when it happened in the church and all the discussions that had to happen over all that was going on? It was probably a major upheaval in the church there. We also see that in the middle of chapter four where, where Paul indicates uh, that where he is in prison, Demas has deserted him and Alexander has done him much harm. So not only does Paul's history show us that he's had a story of massive physical suffering, what we would call multiple traumas, multiple, multiple traumas. I wanted to list out like all the things and I'm like, I don't even have time for this. Um, but he also experienced the emotional pain that comes from betrayal and manipulation and abandonment. And I don't know about you, but those sometimes are far, far more painful than the physical wounds that we can experience. So Paul is in prison at the time when all the prisoners' needs have to be met by outside people who love them, and there's only one person to care for him because everyone else has deserted him. This is Paul, who has given his entire life to serve the Lord, who has poured his life out over and over, who has endured beatings and stonings and uh, lashing with the cat of nine tails over and over for the sake of the gospel, and here he is completely abandoned by all but one person at this time. Now, I don't know about you, but like that would be a recipe of bitterness and despair for me, sitting in prison thinking, and this is what my life has come to, right? But that is not at all how Paul talks about this. Paul responds, and this is in, sorry, I forget you're not having slides, but this is in, um, yeah, my references. It's verse 17, somewhere in 2 Timothy. <laughs> um, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. His relationship with God is what enables him to actually live his life yielded to the spirit and not to be consumed with the disappointments of life. He actually was able to say, may it not be charged against them. This is so incredibly impressive. I think just the way that Paul was able to take these things to the Lord and work through them with him so that it's not poured out as bitterness upon other people. So all of this sounds really admirable, um, and I know some of you are going, and how do you do that? That just seems impossible. But you know, dealing with sin is a non-negotiable in the body of Christ. It's the Lord's design that none of us are to be independent. 
The spiritual gifts are always meant to be used in community and in relationship. And a mature Christian is not independent. A mature Christian is not codependent. But a mature Christian is interdependent with others in the body of Christ. So there is not a person alive who has all of the spiritual gifts or who has a gift that doesn't require them to be in community with others in the body of Christ. They're always to be used in relationship to one another. So if we allow him to, God will use complications to produce maturity and trust in him. When we are in a conflict, it reveals what is on the inside. Nothing gets placed on the inside when we're in a conflict. It actually bubbles up what is already in there. So it's very difficult to go through conflict, but it's even worse to go through conflict and not benefit from it. All believers are constantly being trained by God, but not all actually learn from the training. It's tempting to think, oh, well, I don't know where that came from. That just wasn't me. That's not really the way it works. That's actually what was in you, and it just came out in the middle of that conflict. So surprised, you didn't know it was there, but it was there all along, okay? And it might be tempting to think that you can just, well, what, I think I'm just, you know, people are a pain, and, and we are, we're a pain. People are a pain. I think I'm just gonna focus on my relationship with God and, you know, kind of just isolate myself from other people, and I'll smile and say hi to people at the grocery store, but I'm not gonna get in too deep. Um, but we know that our own confessed sin affects, our own unconfessed sin affects our ability to hear from God and our relationship with him. God's love for people is so great and his desire for them to live in ways that honor one another is so strong that he won't allow us to experience closeness with him before we have done what we can do to be at peace with others. Remember the passage about if you're at the altar offering a sacrifice and you remember that your brother has something against you, that you're to leave your sacrifice and go and make amends with your brother. It's that important, okay? So as we think about these things, there are a few important things that I want you to keep in mind. Number one, do not underestimate the power of the enemy to cloud the issue and cause dissension. This is not an easy task. We have our flesh to deal with that causes us to sin, but we also have an enemy who's actively working to keep believers in conflict and living under deceptive lies about who we are and about who other people are. He knows that God created us to need each other, so if we're not with each other, we can't do the things we're supposed to do. We can't do the one another's if we're not around each other or if we're misunderstanding or misperceiving each other. So the primary way that we fight against um, a cloudy issue, being deceived by the enemy in this, is to keep renewing our mind in the word, in prayer, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Is this really true? And that requires an ability of awareness of what's going on in our, in our own mind. The second thing I want you to keep in mind is that none of us do relationships perfectly. We all sin against each other no matter how relationally gifted you may be. There is always something more to learn and more to understand, not only about others, but about ourselves as well. 
it takes a lifetime to get to know who we really are, and we're always finding new things. Well, gosh, I didn't know that was there. Sometimes they're fun things. I didn't know I loved to learn so much. That was a fun thing I found out about myself this year. I'd much rather learn those kind of things than like, oh man, I like come across cranky when I think I'm hiding it so well. I didn't know that about myself, you know? So it's very important that we approach these things with humility, that we approach one another with humility, because we really are all in this process together. We're working toward the same thing. The third thing I want you to remember is that we are to yield to the Spirit at all times. So in the highly unlikely scenario that you are 95% right in a situation, that 5% that you're wrong still matters still very important. You must model the fruits of the Spirit while you're walking out dealing with conflict. That means even in conflict, you are to be led by the Spirit so you can be loving, so you can be joyful, so you can be peaceful, so you can be patient, kind, good, full of faith, self-controlled, and gentle. Gentle in conflict that takes a lot of skill and ability. That has to be Holy Spirit-led. That does not come naturally to us, right? So I want you to listen to this passage of what it looks like to live out relationship with others in conflict. This is from 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I think that's just so beautiful. It's the kindness and gentleness, the showing of respect to the one who has been captured and held against their will. A lot of times when we're captured, we don't know that we're captured. We think we're free and we think it's the best way. And so it's so important to approach each other with kindness and gentleness and respect. And I actually think we could sit and chew on that verse like all night long. I love that. It's great. Well, I, um, oh, I had a little prop. I meant to bring it, and it's in my office. Oh, well, you guys have to use your imaginations. But I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, believe it or not, and we never had weather that looked like this. Never, not once. Um, we had sunny days almost all the time, and nearly everyone in Phoenix has a pool because it's, like, required because otherwise you just sweat to death while you're there. And we were one of those really poor, unfortunate families that didn't get a pool till I was in high school. But um, I would often swim, I'm, I, that was said sarcastically, we were not poor or unfortunate. <laughs> um, but I spent a lot of time um, in a friend's swimming pools and in neighborhood swimming pools. And one of my favorite things to do was to get one of those big beach balls you try to sit on it and you try to hold it down underwater and you would try to move about and keep it keep balance on top of the ball um it was really fun but you know what would happen like you just move slightly and whoop it pops up and um and then the battle was to put it back under and the more air it had in there the more you know it would just pop right up and the more the less air you could keep it um 
under you a little bit better. But I like this analogy because I think some of us view emotions kind of like that beach ball. We don't like our negative emotions and so we just try to hold them under the water. And it gets kind of hard to just hold it with our arms and so then we try to sit on it, you know, and then it keeps popping out. And every time they pop out, you know, it can pop out looking a lot of different ways. It can pop out as addiction. It can pop out as being irritable. It can pop out as excessive eating. It can pop out as um, depression and just the desire to sleep. Um, all of these things pop out at the most inopportune times. It can also pop out in some physical ailments. Now, I don't, don't get me wrong, I don't think all physical ailments are related to stuffed emotions, but our bodies and our souls are connected. There is a connection there, and there are times when we do experience emotions um, trying to get out, but it happens in a physical way. So this might be a preferred way of you dealing with emotions is trying to stuff them down and hold them underwater so that nobody can see. But it's not very effective, right? You're like you can't really swim with the beach ball trying, trying to hold underwater. You can't go very far if you're trying to sit on it and swim your arms. I hope you're seeing me as a little child doing this. It was so fun. <laughs> um, so some of you guys might try that with your emotions. The others of you might think, you know, these negative emotions, they're not really my favorite. I think I'm just going to shut those off because I like the happy and the joy, and I'm just going to, like, get rid of those ones that we kind of think of as negative emotions. Um, the problem is it doesn't really work that way. I've tried this, so I can tell you it does not work. But what happens is we have a scale of emotions. You know, a healthy person experiences all of this, and we don't want to be on the roller coaster ride, but this is the range of healthy emotions. And when you bring it up... When you bring up the bottom so that you're not experiencing negative emotions, it actually just shoop, brings the top right down too. And then we're experiencing a very small range of emotions. And we lose joy and we lose happiness and we lose some of the great things that God has planned for us because we decide that we don't want to deal with those more, what we consider more unpleasant emotions. But being able to process and work through your thoughts and feelings is key to any good relationship. So having a full range of emotions is what makes us human and not robots. Really, that's kind of what we become. When you, if you've seen someone who has learned just through so much life pain to just kind of shut everything down, it's, it's like almost like they're living dead people, right? They're just kind of walking around, doing life, but they're just not connected. Commotions are actually a gift from God that connects us to him and to other people. So we're missing out on so much. This is not the life that God has planned for us just to disconnect because of that pain. I want you to think of the people that you are closest to. Bring up a few people in your mind. I want you to think about what separates them from the people that you're not the closest to. I would guess that the people that you're closest to are those that you share your most difficult feelings or your most sacred emotions. Those are the people that you feel closest with. This is what draws us together. Emotions actually serve a purpose. They let us know what's going on inside of our soul. 
And so we like to label emotions, good emotions, bad emotions, but even what we consider bad emotions are really helpful because they let us know that there needs to be, there's something's off, there needs to be attention given to this issue. And God wants us to come to him in all of our emotions. And so it's easy to think, oh, I'll just, y'all memorize the attributes of God. But when we come to him with all of our emotions, that's where we actually experience God in all that he is, where he comes to us in those places. And we see um, David being a man after God's own heart and all the things that he writes in the Psalms every wide range of emotion. I want to kill them, God, you know, to this is the most amazing thing ever and everything in between. And this is what God loves. This is what he welcomes from us. It's not that we have to come to him having things all straightened out. This is, this is our relationship with him when we come to him and say, something's off and I don't know what's going on and I need help in this area. So how does this relate to relationships in the body of Christ, you might be wondering. Well, sometimes we think there is an issue and it wants, we want to just jump ship on the relationship. We think, um, yeah, I, I just can't handle her anymore. Um, but it could be that there is something going on in yourself that you need to work through. Believe it or not, it might be something in you and not in her that needs to be addressed. I know it's way easier to see the things in other people, right? It's e always easier to spot what's going on when you're on the outside, not when you're on the inside and it's cluttered by all these thoughts and emotions. But we all have baggage from our past that can get into our current relationships without us really even being aware of it. So some of us have been able um, to unload that baggage through um, repentance and through prayer and through healing in Christ, we've been unable to unload that baggage. And I kind of think of it like we're just zipping around on motorcycles, weaving in and out of traffic, like we're supposed to be really agile. Others of us are driving around a Mack truck. We're dragging behind all of our issues. We're trying to parallel park in Aggieville and we're wondering why we're taking out buildings, right? As we go about, right? And the good news is that you don't have to drive that Mack truck. I've been there, I've driven the Mack truck. I've smashed through people and relationships and caused a lot of heartache. But there is repentance, there's forgiveness. The Lord helps us understand what's going on inside so that we can get free of that baggage. You're not stuck forever with that Mack truck. You really can get back to the little motorcycle. So I want to introduce you to a tool that's been so helpful to me and others as a way to begin to process through your emotions um, in a specific situation that is bothering you. The Ladder of Integrity has been created, developed by Pete Scazzaro. He was a pastor at a multicultural church in New York City for 23 years, and through and then though his church seemed successful from all outward appearances, over time he noticed how poorly he personally worked through conflict and how difficult relationships were in the body of Christ. Um, he actually talks about a point of crisis came when his wife said, honey, I'm quitting our church. 
it's so dysfunctional, I'm quitting. And he was like, what? You can't quit the church? And, and she's like, oh, don't worry, I'm not quitting our marriage. I'm just quitting the church. And he's a senior pastor. And that set him on a whole different um, personal journey. He ended up going back to school for more training. And so he's seminary trained, and he's also trained in marriage and family therapy. And now he, um, I think it's marriage and family. Yeah. Um, Anyway, now he runs an organization called EmotionallyHealthy.org. And so if you're listening online, you can find this Ladder of Integrity um, at that website. But Pete Scazzaro has been a mentor to me in many ways through his books and his podcasts. And I really um, love a lot of the content that he has. And so if you haven't already, um, turn to the page in your booklet that looks that says Ladder of Integrity. It'll look like this. And I'm going to walk you through an example situation of how one might do this. So uh, the scenario is we've got two people, Sharon and Susie. So Sharon felt increasing distance in her relationship with Susie. A couple months ago, Sharon was going through a particularly difficult time and texted Susie with a prayer request. Susie responded, but it seemed half-hearted. Additionally, Susie did not follow up with a phone call or a conversation about it in person. Sharon was hurt. Susie had been her closest friend for several years. Being a pretty private person, Sharon did not just share these types of things with just anyone. In fact, Sharon would mostly just share things with Susie. Sharon didn't bring up the topic again since the initial SOS prayer request via text and has been gradually putting distance between herself and Susie, and as a result, she's becoming more and more lonely and discouraged. So given that situation, let's take a look at how she might process through this on the ladder of integrity. So if we start the ladder, because it's a ladder, we start at the bottom. We climb a ladder from the bottom up. And so you would look at number one. So number one, right now the issue on my mind is, and so Sharon might decide, right now I'm hurt. You know, I really thought Susie was a good friend to me and look how she's treated me. I'm like, I'm really offended. And number two, I'm anxious in talking about this. Even talking, even when you're talking to yourself, you can become anxious about it, right? Like we want to ignore it because if I talk about it with myself, then that might mean it's really real. Like what if Susie really is rejecting me, right? So even that anxious anxiety can come up. I'm anxious in talking about this because I'm really afraid I'm gonna lose her as a friend. My part in this, so as Sharon prayerfully considers she realizes a few things about herself. Number one, she's been pretty isolated and having one friend. That kind of puts a lot of pressure on one friend. Number two, she kind of forgot that Susie has some things going on in her own life that are kind of intense right now. And that might have kind of distracted Susie from, from the situation. And so Sharon realizes, you know, I, I could have I could have brought this up again. You know, I could have given her another chance. I could I could have even just talked to her about it a little bit. But now several months have gone by and so it's getting to the point where now everything Susie does is irritating Sharon because that's what happens when we're kind of get our feelings hurt, then 
then um, we just start to get super irritated at, oh my gosh, can you believe she wore that color? It looks terrible on her, right? <laughs> because we're so mature. We're such mature Christian women, right? Um, so then Sharon goes up to number four, my need in this issue, and she realizes she really does have a need for friends. And because she remembers back to where she really got hurt in a friendship when she was in college. At that point, she kind of just decided to narrow things down and it was really hard for her to trust people and so she would just like pick one or two people and those were the only people she would trust. Sounds like a good plan, but when you put all your apples in one basket, it doesn't always work out very well. That person might not always be available or they might actually just be imperfect like all people are and they might make a mistake, right? So Sharon's feelings about this are she feels hurt, she feels lonely because she's been separated from her friend that she cares about. She feels anxious because she's worried that Susie might reject her because surely Susie has noticed that she's been pulling away. What her reaction tells her about herself is that she really does care deeply about people. And as much as she doesn't want to have her life influenced by how other people interact or how available they are to her, she really is like every other human and she needs people. This issue is important to her because she values blank and she violates that value when. So Sharon might say, this issue is important to me because I do really value my friendship with Susie and I violate that value when I withdraw from her in my pain rather than bringing this up again that I really would like to talk to her about this thing that that is bothering me and I would really like to pray with her about. Number eight, what she is willing or not willing to do. So Sharon has decided um, she's willing to branch out. She understands that it's important to have more than one close friend that she needs to have a few close friends and then maybe some other external friends um, in her outer circle too. She's not willing to just trust anyone. So she's going to kind of scope this out by taking some people on some coffee dates and seeing if they might be good friends with her, but she's not gonna make commitments to anybody because she's gonna walk forward wisely, but she is gonna put herself out there. Number nine, one thing she could do to improve the situation is Sharon decides, you know, I'm going to bring this up with Susie again. I'm going to just say, not I'm disappointed you didn't text me back, but she's going to talk about the issue going on in her own life that she needs prayer for because she knows Susie really does care about her and would love to pray with her. Number 10, the most important thing I want you to know, that line kind of sounds like you might be sharing this with someone, and it may or may not be something you would share with someone, but I think it's good to know. And in this case, Sharon has decided the most important thing she wants Susie to know is she really, really cares about her, and she's committed to the friendship, and she's committed to working through things. Um, when Susie does things that disappoint her, and she's also committed to hearing from Susie when she does things that disappoint Susie. Sharon decides number 11 that her, by her on, that her honest sharing will benefit their relationship by bringing them closer together instead of driving them apart and never talking about this. Actually talking about it, 
a little bit, not in an accusatory way, but actually talking about it is going to develop closeness in their relationship and strengthen it in a way that it couldn't have been strengthened if they hadn't dealt with this. And she decides, number 12, she hopes and look f looks forward to actually talking with Susie about this, to have a chance to pray on the issue that they really want to talk about, that she really wants to pray with her about. So that is a little example of one issue. So you'll see it was a small issue. It was just a text that didn't get the response that she wanted. But out of that, by taking it to the Lord in prayer and asking these questions, she found out a whole slew of things about herself, right? If she would have just been stewing about this at home, you know, then, well, it's all Susie's fault, and well, Susie's so self-absorbed, and she has so many friends, she doesn't have time for me, and blah, 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 how we go on in our minds, don't we? Right? But she really actually realizes, gosh, there's something going on in me that needs some attention. So I went through that really fast. If you're working through the ladder of integrity, it's gonna take you probably 30 minutes to an hour to, to, to work around one issue, depending on how deep the issue is, how long it has been. Um, but it is a really great tool. And I want to emphasize again that while some of the questions toward the top of the ladder allude to a conversation with another person, I wanna be clear that the ladder of integrity is not a conflict resolution tool. It is um, a way to get to know what is going on inside your soul. And so once you work through the ladder, you might realize actually there's no conflict that needs to be dealt with. Everything that needed to be dealt with is going on inside of me, right? It's not an issue where I would need to confront one, someone. Um, all right. I hope that's helpful to you and not overwhelming as we go through that, but we are gonna have some time for personal reflection. And so I'm gonna give you an opportunity to begin to pray and think on the ladder of integrity in your time, anything that the Lord has brought to mind here. And I'm guessing that there probably is at least one thing that has come up to you as we've talked about conflict, because like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. It's everyone has done it before. We all have gone through conflict. We're all going through conflict. We all will go through conflict. It's really, really important to the health of the body of Christ for us to be able to walk through these things in a healthy way. And that always starts with examining what's going on in our own lives. So as we um, move to this time of reflection, I want to pray for you guys going into that time. And then after the prayer, I'll give you a few logistical instructions on that. Father, I thank you. Um, I thank you for your word. I thank you how we've seen godly men and women throughout the ages prioritize relationships. And Father, we come knowing that none of us here have it all together. None of us are able to walk in relationship without sinning against another. None of us here are able um, to be in relationship without being sinned against. And yet we acknowledge that these are the very people that you have called us to. They're the ones um, that we are to be kind and gentle and loving with. Lord, I pray for these ladies as they have some time for personal reflection that they would be able to come to you with the things that are concerning them with the things um, that you have placed on their hearts that you bring to mind 
the important pieces that you have for them this evening. I pray in their group discussion time that that would be a really safe place where people can share as much as they feel comfortable but also don't feel pressured to share. Um, Father, that your spirit would be very present, that you would be moving in this place and that you would be having your way. God, we want to be men and women who honor you, who walk forward in integrity um, in the way that we interact with others. And we need your help. We know this is impossible to do well without the strength of your spirit. And so we ask all these things in your name. Amen.